The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. So this morning we're going to pray for us. We pray through different churches, and um, but this morning we're going to pray for us. We're going to pray for our small groups that meet in this church. So we have Miss Shirley's class, which is an all-women's class that meets here in this first classroom. We have Pastor Darren teaching a class that, as Darren says, you go there to, to die in. Is that it? Or is it your last class? What? I'm not sure what that is. Last class you'll ever be at, yeah. Um, currently, I am teaching the youth in the last classroom, but starting next week, Sir Ben Van Holstein will teach another adult class it's using the same material, and he's going to meet in that classroom. So you may have heard of that talked about in Sunday school today. We're going to start a new adult class. Why? Well, because Darren's class sometimes has no empty seats, and, and John's class, they have lots of room to grow, but... For a small group, you don't want your group to be too big. Then it's not a small group anymore. Um, and as as I pass out the uh, the uh, attendance forms, John's class, I've had to use a smaller font to keep it to one page. <laughs> so that's right. <laughs> so so if you're not in a small group, this is the time to start a, go to join uh, to start joining a small group. Um, if you're in one of the other small groups and you want to try something a little bit different, there's your opportunity to do that. And I kind of encourage some of you to do that. Why? That leaves empty seats in those other classrooms for visitors that come when somebody's invited. Um, also, John's class that meets in the basement of the other building. We have all the young kids' classes that meet back in the children's center. We have an older elementary uh, taught by... Ann Van Holstein, and then Natalie and, and Isaiah helps in there, and then Natalie and uh, Dave teach the younger elementary. Uh, Miss Linda and, and Mercy teach the older el, el, uh, preschoolers. Sonia and, and currently, and Kylie teach the younger preschoolers, toddlers. And uh, uh, Kelly, yeah, I know her. Um, <laughs> She, she helps take care of the babies. And then on, Tuesday, on Monday afternoons, actually Monday morning now at 11 o'clock, there is a women's Bible study that meets back here in the Welcome Center. And on Friday nights, we have a small group that meets here, also back in the Welcome Center. Um, and so we pray for all these small groups. We pray for, and then also, starting tomorrow, we have a new small group. It's a very special small group. It's called Grief Share. Um, we're starting it because of Miss Shirley. Um, she has been attending Grief Share at another church. And Grief Share are for those who have lost somebody. Somebody has died that is close to you. It could be somebody recent. It could have been a long time ago. And if you're still struggling with it, it's, it's a group that we share our concerns with one another. We go through Scripture and talk about how you can turn to God through your grief. 
and you share your stories. When it's, a, it's a video series, so there's video teachers that come on and talk about Bible, talk about psychology, talk about practical ways to help. And it's a 13-week it's a study. We start tomorrow. Tomorrow's a week zero, so we're going to just be a kind of an introductory thing tomorrow. But tomorrow night, here, back in the Welcome Center at 6 p.m., there are flyers back there on the back table that give more details about what grief share is. Um, but we're going to start that this summer. And so um, it's, it's not something that we designed. It, it comes, there's a group that designed that. But as I've read it and as I've studied it, it's like this stuff is on par. This is on par. It's on par biblically. It's on par with how I help people through my counseling. It's on par. It's some good stuff. Miss Shirley has been doing it for the last year, and she just finished her third time through it. Okay. Uh, also helping is Jackie Dewey. Uh, she's working on her first time through it. But if it's for men, it's for women, it's for adults. That if you're struggling with somebody you've lost, it, it's for you to come and look. So all these small groups, and the groups that we haven't started yet, or we have any planned? Well, I don't have any others planned, but that doesn't mean we can't pray for them. Because we don't, what do we need to do next? I don't know. Um, it's the group, it's for praying for the teachers, it's praying for the material. So let's pray for Tower View and our small groups. Lord God, we just come to you now. And we just lift up all these groups. Sometimes individuals are involved with more than one group, and that's okay. But Lord, we pray for these groups as we study your word. We pray for the teachers, that they can be diligent to study before the lesson. We pray for the members of the group, Lord that they will learn, that they can share. It's not just about learning, Lord, but it's also about sharing. What, sometimes it's sharing what you know about Scripture. Sometimes it's sharing about life and praying for one another, rejoicing in the blessings of life and praying and crying over the tragedies of life. And sometimes just helping, practically helping one another out. And so we pray for these groups, the ones that meet on Sunday morning. The ones for adults, the ones for kids, the ones for younger people, the ones for older people. That we can be connected together and, and, and grow in bonds with our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pray for this grief share group as we get started, Lord. It's kind of an unknown thing that we're doing. We've never led one before. I thank you for Miss Shirley for bringing the idea here that we can start this. And for all who want to come, Lord. I pray that you just touch their heart and their mind and give them the courage to come and that that will be a time of healing for all who are involved. We just thank you for the opportunity that we have to bond with one another through these small groups, to, to learn about you and about one another through these small groups. And I pray that your blessings will be on them that we will grow, whether it's growing in numbers or growing spiritually, that we will grow because of those things. We just pray all these in Jesus Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Well, we're here to learn something new today, right? So here is something new. There's a, there's a picture as soon as it, there it is. 
All right, how many of you guys have watched this sport? Okay, we got one, two, okay. Have you watched it before? What's it called? Football, almost right, but not quite. Rugby, it, it, it does look like rugby, doesn't it? But it is not rugby. It does look, it looks like a rugby ball, but it is not rugby. Arena, nope, it's not a real football. It, it's more of like a real a rugby football than an American football. This is called Australian Rules Football. And as far as I know, nobody is doing anything illegal in these two plays. It is perfectly legal to go up and put a knee in somebody's face while you're jumping over them. Um, next, the next picture. Here's a referee. He's doing the signal. Okay. And here's another picture. Here's a picture of the field. All right. Who's ready to go play? Do you know all the rules now? How many players on a side? What's a penalty? What's not? Do you know? Come on, we've just seen some pictures of it. You know all the rules now, right? I've watched this sport for quite a while. ESPN, but when ESPN first started, they used to show this quite a bit because they didn't have anything else they were allowed to show. And now with so many sports networks, it's now on TV again because they don't have anything else to show. Um, it's an interesting game. But if from a few pictures, you can't get all the rules. You don't know how to play the game. What's legal? What's illegal? How do you move that ball down the field? What does it mean when you catch it? Um, you don't know. Just as you cannot learn a new game from a few pictures, you can't know anything, everything about the heavenly realm from a few short descriptions that we get in scriptures. How often have you been on vacation and you came back with pictures and said something like, these pictures don't do it justice. You just had to be there. John was not just seeing the future, but the present in the heavenly realm. He was seeing a spiritual world from a mortal man's point of view. It's not that his descriptions are wrong. They're just limited. Limited by vocabulary. Limited by experience. Limited by imagination. You just have to be, you just have to be there to truly appreciate it. So today in Scripture, we get a glimpse of heaven, of God the Father, the resurrection and glorified Jesus, and, and, and sometimes heavenly creatures. Here we just get Jesus. And all are really indescribable. How do you describe the indescribable? John tries to do that. And in this last part of Revelation 1, we have seven insights into John's situation. So, well, let's get started. So number one. John's earthly situation. In verse 9 and 10, we get who John, to John's earthly situation. It says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker, partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was called on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard Behind me, a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. We get John's earthly situation. John, he doesn't label himself. He doesn't label himself an apostle, an elder, but as a brother. But who is this John? It's, yeah, it's, 
John, one of the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. John, who left John the Baptist to follow Jesus. He's probably the first disciple. John, who with his brother, James, asked Jesus to sit next to him in his kingdom and upset the other ten disciples. John, who with his brother James and Peter got to go up on the mountain and see a glorified Jesus along with Moses and Elijah. (coughs) Excuse me. John, who reclined next to Jesus at the Last Supper. John, who stood at the foot of the cross as Jesus died. John, who recognized Jesus when they were fishing. John, who saw Jesus ascend into heaven in Acts chapter 1. And John, who according to Paul in Galatians 2, welcomed Paul into the faith. In the Gospel of John, Jesus call, uh, John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he never names himself. In his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, sometimes he calls himself the elder. And he calls the people he's writing to little children. But he never names himself. Yet here, he names himself. But he gives himself no title other than brother, or depending on your translation, partner, fellow partaker. He doesn't call himself apostle. He doesn't call himself disciple or any other grandiose title, or even as the elder. He's just a brother. He's just a partner. He's your equal. He's like, no, John's our equal. He's a disciple. Well, when compared to the Almighty, when compared to the Alpha and Omega, when compared to the glorious nature of Jesus, he is our equal. He's a man like you and me. He got to see Jesus in person, but other than that, he's no different than you or me today. He is our brother. He is our partner in Christ Jesus. Yet, was he experiencing? The answer he put in threes. There's another three there. In three parts. Tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance. I'm reading from the New American Standard. That's the three words they use. Tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance. John suffered from persecution. Directly and indirectly. Just like the members of those seven, the seven churches he, he's a part of. John... He's exiled in Patmos. John and us, we're in the kingdom of God through the salvation of Jesus Christ. We're in the same kingdom. John is persevering just like you are. If all was happy and perfect, there'd be no reason to persevere. It'd be easy, right? Why is there tribulation and persecution? What's it say there at the end of verse 9? Because of the word of God. People reject the word of God, don't want to hear it. Sometimes they just say, nah, 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 I don't want to hear it. 
Sometimes they cuss you out saying they don't want to hear it. And depending on where you are in the world, they'll throw you in jail because they don't want to hear it. There's persecution happening in this world today. And if it's a friend of yours and they don't want to hear it, they may punch you in the mouth, literally. If it's your family that don't want to hear it, they may not want to talk to you anymore and not call you up. There are people in this world today that if you be, one of their children become a Christian, they will have a funeral for their child, even as their, ch- their child is alive and walking. Why do you know about the kingdom of God? Because of the word of God. That's why we know about all this stuff. If it wasn't for the word of God, we'd be spouting ignorance. Why can you persevere? Because of the word of God. Revelation is a part of the word of God. So even as they were persevering, they still didn't understand the future well. Apparently some in the early church were trying to predict the end times. As we read earlier in John 21, some people thought John wouldn't die before Jesus came back. Why would they think that? They had to come up with something. They heard that and they twisted it a little bit and turned it into the fit their, fit their theology, their eschatology. Yet here is John, our brother and partner, helping to set the record straight as directed by God Almighty. What's John doing on this island of Patmos? And we see that in verse 10. He is worshiping in spirit on the Lord's day. Despite John's isolation, despite his loneliness from his brothers and sisters in Christ, despite his lack of resources, John was worshiping on the Lord's day. Despite all that was lacking and missing, missing, John still worshiped. How important is worshiping to you? What obstacles stop you from worshiping God with other believers? Now, sometimes we can't come because we're sick, have sick kids, all, all those things happen. But what does it take to stop you? A little bit or a lot? Just because you're traveling doesn't mean you can't stop and worship with other believers. All that happened to John, he was still worshiping. Worshiping God is valuable to you today as it is to John then. Here it says the Lord's day. This is the only place in the New Testament that says the Lord's day. You will not find that phrase anywhere else in the New Testament. Sometimes they mention they worship on the first day of the week, but they don't call it the Lord's Day. Actually, the Greek phrase that we translate the Lord's Day is actually used one other place in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 11, but there it's translated the Lord's Supper. As if they were one and the same. Hmm. But John was truly worshiping in the Spirit. It doesn't mean he was speaking in tongues or praying in any special prayer language. It just means he was worshiping with all his might. He was not worshiping half-heartedly. He wasn't scrolling social media while other people were singing. 
he was participating fully, even if he was alone. And it's while he was worshiping, he heard a voice. But it was a sound that was like nothing he had ever heard before. It was clear. It was loud. It was distinct. Kind of like a trumpet blast, but not exactly. It was more than a trumpet sound. <clears throat> and what did this voice say? Well, it was number two. It was John's commission, part one. He gets it in two parts. John was simply commanded to write what the church, to the churches what he knew. Here the voice sounds like a trumpet. Later in verse 15, it says the voice was sounded like many waters. His voice is so distinct and so otherworldly that he uses two different descriptions to try to describe what he heard. How did he describe the indescribable? Back in verse 4, it's John mentions that there's going to be seven churches. Here in verse 11, let me read verse 11. It says, write in a book that you, what you see. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And you see on this map here, you can see where the seven cities are. Number one, Ephesus is a port city. So if a messenger came from Patmos, which you see there in the sea, which is about 40 miles offshore, the first place he goes to is Ephesus. And then if he was to go to all seven of those cities, the, the shortest, easiest route is to follow the, the order that is listed here in verse 11. It's just a order of march. This is a, there's nothing mystical about this. There's plenty of mysteries in the book of Revelation. This is not one of them. All right? John receives more specifics of what to write in a few verses. But now we see in verse number 3, John's heavenly scene. Verses 12 to 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the, the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair, hair was like white wool, like snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face like the sun was shining in its, in its strength. And so we see this. We see a temple object. We see seven golden lampstands. We see a heavenly object. The wording here is sometimes unclear. So the seven golden lampstands, is that one lampstand with seven candles across the top like a menorah? Or is it seven individual lamps with one lamp on top? The wording is unclear. It could be either one. Does it matter? Not really. But if you want to know what those, a lampstand might have looked like, go back to Exodus chapter 25 where God tells them how to build one for the, for the tabernacle. 
So this is something Jewish Christians would have been very familiar with. The rest of the descriptions are just kind of mingled. But it starts off with Jesus described as like a son of man. Or depending on your translation, or like the son of man. Depending on which translations you have. Why? Which one's right? Well, the wording, both could be correct. It's, it's, it's one, another one of those that's it's unclear. But Jesus described himself as the Son of Man throughout the Gospels. That's his own title that he used for himself. We know when Ezekiel, Ezekiel was called the Son of Man. Obviously, Ezekiel is not the Messiah. He was just a man. But in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, we read about the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days. in a heavenly vision that Daniel had, much like we see here. This is Jesus, the one and only. The one seen by Daniel, now John sees him in the spirit. Because, why? Because Jesus is no longer in the flesh, at least the flesh that we know of. And Jesus is described wearing a robe. And a sash. He's with his clothes. He's wearing a robe and he's wearing a sash, a golden sash. But there are no shoes. There's no crown. We don't get the color of the robe here. In other places, the robe is called white. But here, we don't get a color of the robe. Just a sash. The sash is gold. Why? Because it's valuable. It signifies royalty and importance. It's rare. It's rare and precious, like our salvation. And it's wonderful to look at. White. It describes his head and his hair as white. White is a color of purity, of wisdom. But this hair is what? It's whiter than anything as John has ever seen before. It's like pure, clean wool. But it's whiter than that. It's like new snow. But it's whiter than that. It's a white that doesn't exist on earth. And then Jesus' eyes, it says they were like fire, a flaming fire. If you watch modern TV shows, fantasy, science fiction, usually the bad guy, when he's possessed by some evil something, his eyes glow. And so we almost always think of this as evil when the eyes glow. But this Jesus ain't evil. He's fire. Fire is judgment. Jesus' eyes can see through you better than Superman can. He can see your mind. He can see your spirit for judgment. He can see it all. And then his feet are like burnished bronze. They glowed like they just came out of the furnace. It's something amazing to see. Feet are power. Where are you read about somebody you know, under your foot? You know, because you have power over them if they're under your feet. And Jesus' feet don't need any shoes to protect him. There's something like bronze. There's something like bronze that just came out of the forger's fire, but that's not what they are. But how else do you describe them? There's something even more amazing than that. 
And then his voice is like many waters. What is that? Have you ever been at a waterfall? A big waterfall? That's many waters. You ever been on the seashore where the big waves are pounding in and the sound of the waves crashing on the shore? That's many waters. That's what his voice sounded like. Sort of, kind of. But it was also like a trumpet. Which one is it? How do you describe the indescribable? And Jesus is standing there in the temple. Yet he held seven stars in his hand. How big is God's temple if he can hold seven stars in his hand? Stars are not small. I mean, they can see points of light. But think about that. He could hold seven stars. And Jesus is strong enough to hold them. And it doesn't hurt him. Jesus has that kind of power. And out of his mouth is a sword. That one's just weird. Is it like a, like a really long three-foot sword? Or is it just like a sword is just as big as his tongue? A little one. And how would you draw that? How could you speak if you had a sword coming out of your mouth? I don't know. John had to find a way to describe this. That's what it looked like to him. Because obviously that cannot literally be true. I don't know. It doesn't say like on this one. It doesn't say like a sword. It just says a sword. But you know what it makes you think of? It makes you think of Hebrews. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give an account. And what is it? And yet his face, it shines like the sun. Something glorious and warming. If you're in a bad mood, go take a walk in the sunshine. Your mood will be better. may not be all up here where you want it to be, but it will be better than it was. If your mood is gloomy, take a walk in the sunshine. We need to re-energize, take a walk in the sunshine. All this paints a glorious picture of our risen Savior in his heavenly realm. John saw part of this at the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw part of this when he saw the risen Lord Jesus. Here John sees Jesus in all of his heavenly glory. A sign meant to encourage John and those who were struggling to persevere. And it's meant to encourage you too as you struggle to persevere. But now we see how John recognizes this. How did John recognize him? In part number four, verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. When John saw Jesus, recognized him, he fell. He realized his sin like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6. But you know what else? He recognized the one he has spent three years with on earth. You realize it has been about 60 years since John last saw Jesus when he was risen, when he was ascended into heaven? 
John, Revelation was probably written around 95 AD. So it's been roughly 60 years. Jesus would have been ascended around 33 AD or give or take. 60 years. And he sees Jesus again. And this is what he sees. He is now reunited with Jesus. But not the earthly Jesus, the glorious Jesus. It shook him, it shook him to his, his system that he fell in worship, but he fell in shock and awe, and he passed out. But you know what? Jesus cares for him. John was comforted. What's it say Jesus did in verse 17? And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. With all the power of Jesus' glory, he still cares for you. That hand that held the seven stars in his hand now reached down and touched John. He will stoop down and touch you and pick you up. Jesus is absolutely worthy of glory and honor and worship, yet he knows you. He cares for you better than your, better than your best friend cares for you, better than your spouse cares for you, better than your parents care for you. No matter your circumstance in life, no matter the condition of your earthly body, young and strong, old and weak, somewhere in between, still growing, no matter the condition of your bank account, no matter the condition of your house that you live in, he cares for you. Whether you are facing death in a hospital or facing death because of persecution, he cares for you. Turn to Christ today. Keep turning to Christ today. Don't quit turning to Christ today. But Jesus has power. What did he say? He is the first and the last. God the Father, in a few verses ago, said he was the Alpha and Omega. Jesus says he's the first and the last. Jesus has power to help you. Even as you face tribulation and struggle to persevere, Jesus holds the keys. And if you hold the keys, you have the power. What's he have power over? Death and Hades. Hades, isn't that from Greek mythology? Yes, but no. In the, in the, the Jews used the Greek word Hades to translate the Old Testament word Sheol, which just means the grave the place where dead people go. So death in Hades, it's a mirrorism. It means everything that has to do with death, from the process of dying to where you go when you die. Jesus has the keys. Jesus has the power over it all. You will not die before the time God has ordained it. Because we all know we're going to die someday. We just don't know when. We don't know how.
And now John finds out what he has to write about. John's commission, part two. Verse 19, Therefore write these things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Does that clear it up, what he has to write about? You've got to write about three things. The things you have seen, the things that are, and the things that will take place after these things. Many see this as the outline to the book of Revelation. It might be. I don't know. It's... Some have defined it so well, they said, well, chapter 1, well, that's the things that have, have seen. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things that are, and chapter 4 and on are the, all the things that, that go afterwards. It could be, but many books in the Bible are not chronological. Think of the Gospels. They're not always chronological, especially John's Gospel. They're not always chronological. The Bible itself is not in chronological order as a whole. And prophetic books and, and, and apocryphal books, even more so, sometimes the chronology is, is a bit skewed and unclear. So does that mean Revelation is that way? I don't know, maybe. It's not that simple all the time. Listen, I, when I was in high school, our youth group studied the book of Revelation twice led by our pastor. Our church watched the Billy Graham movies, A Thief in the Night, and the, the follow-on ones as a trilogy. The church library had a novel that I checked out, and it was a novel about, a, I don't even remember many of the details, but it was about the tribulation and the rapture, and somebody was, the rapture happened and they were left behind. But it was not left behind because it was before then. So by the time the Left Behind book came out, I was like, in the movies, and I was like, been there, done that. Um, as I've gotten older, I've become less concerned about timelines. I, you know, one time I thought, if you believed in post-millennialism or amillennialism, I thought you were some liberal heretic. What's wrong with you? Why don't you believe the Bible? But... I've read great, about great, great theologians and other dear brothers in Christ who are not pre-trib, pre-mill. <gasps> but you know what? That's what's been taught in our churches, evangelical churches, the past 50, 60 years. Right or wrong, it's, that's what's been taught. But you know what? There are probably elements of pre-mill and post-mill and a-mill that are all true. My guess is that none of them are completely wrong. None of them are completely right either. Which, which parts are right and which one are wrong? I don't know. Future hasn't happened yet. The early Christians in the first century thought John wasn't going to die before Jesus came back. They were wrong. The scribes and the priests and the Pharisees of Jesus' day had their charts and their sets of things of what the Messiah was going to do. And they were mostly wrong. They got a couple things right, but they were mostly wrong. And in fact, many of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah still haven't happened yet. They're kind of, you see them in Revelation here, but they haven't happened yet. Messiah hasn't done everything that God said he was going to do, even in the Old Testament. 
So as we read this, to study is not to predict the future, but to note that when it happens, we can see that it was already in the Scripture. So I'm holding my views on Revelation much more loosely these days. If you think I'm wrong, I'm not going to get too anxious about it. And I'm a guy who gets anxious about everything. What you or I think about specifics of eschatology, that's the big word, doesn't change how we live today. What God says about the future should change how I live today. He's like, wait, what? We don't need to live our lives trying to predict the future. Darren had a sign up for somebody tried to predict the future recently. Somebody did that way back when I was in high school. I remember walking around high school one day going, am I going to go home today? Which home am I going to? That was a long time ago. That was long for some of you, but it was a long time ago for me. He was wrong. Every prediction has been wrong so far. That shouldn't control our lives. If somebody, even if somebody predicts a day, why would you sell everything and go like sit on a mountain? What good does that do? If God's coming back, what does it matter if you sell your stuff? Why bother with all that work? Yeah, geez. Go, oh, you don't care about it anymore, right? What God says about the future should change how I live today. Why? Because God wins. The specific events of timelines don't matter. You must live by faith every day, no matter the specific circumstances of your life. And finally, we get a mystery solved. Jesus tells us what some of the mysteries are in here. In verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we see those seven lampstands back in verse 11. Here they says, that's the churches. These seven churches that we named, here are their seven lampstands. What matters is that God considers each church as a light unto the world. Shine the light. Shine the light of God's glory to brothers and sisters in the church. We should be shining the light to each other. But also to the world around us. Shine your light. Then we get what the seven stars are. It says angels. And I said, or messengers. I was like, where's that say that in there? It doesn't say that. The word angels is a Greek word. We didn't translate it. You've heard of the city of angels, Los Angeles? Well, if they translate it, it would be the city of messengers. Doesn't sound near as exciting, does it? <laughs> but that's what the word angel means, is messenger. In the Old Testament, it's also messenger. And we translate it angel when it's a heavenly being. So the question is, should they have translated it angels or should they have made it messengers? Which way should they have done it? Both? Well, we'll see. Um, he said, it said, you know, it says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Does that mean we have a guardian angel for our church? But when you start reading chapters 2 and 3, each letter starts off with, to the angel of the church of. 
Why would God need to write a letter to angels? Heavenly angels. So it seems to think in this specific instance, it's more of the earthly person, a messenger. Well, who's the messenger? To the pastor? Ew. Yeah, the pastor. Oh, well, that's exciting. That's exhilarating. Wait a minute, that's humbling. That's actually terrifying. All at the same time. Like, wait a minute, God has named me a messenger? And he's got me in his hand, paying attention to what's happening, what I'm doing or not doing? But it's comforting because, what? Jesus cares. He loves. So whether it's a heavenly angel that's watching over us, and where is he? I don't know. If he's here, maybe he's outside on the steeple. I don't know. <laughs> or he's just talking about Darren and Brian and I, or whoever comes next. God's got us in his hands. And so we've just went through this, and some of you are still in your head going, wait a minute, we didn't stand up and read this. But you know why? Well, one, it's I'm me. I do things differently. But two, now that we've went through it, we understand all these likes. In fact, if you go through there, there's eight times he says like. Now, let us stand up if you're able, and let's read this scripture. If I'm able. Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9. So, as we're reading, the praise team is going to be coming up front. Because this is the conclusion. I, John your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was called was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like the sound of a trumpet and it was saying Write in a book what you see. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking, that was speaking with me. And I turned, and I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of those lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded with a sash around his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was the sound like of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. And his face, like the sun, was shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first, the last. I am the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. 
more, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write these things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which are the that which will take place in the future after these things. And as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Lord God, help us as we turn to you today to worship your, you, the glorious and risen Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.